All right, well, it's May 22nd, and we're back in our study, taken primarily from that book, License to Kill, by Brian Hedges. I'm using that as a general outline to guide us through our battle against sin and so forth. And we had talked about how we had uh, approached the first uh, few chapters in that book where we identified sin and how nasty it was and just learned about calling it what it is and the way it works in our life. We passed that and we, as we moved on into chapter 6, we started looking at some very practical things that the Word of God has for us, the provisions uh, through Christ that we have in our life that give us not our victory, but His victory. And there's a little slippery slope right there because sometimes we start thinking that we maybe have arrived a bit or we've grown to a point of success in our spiritual life. And uh, that's pretty much a dangerous place to be. We need to be always cognizant of the fact that we're totally uh, dependent upon the finished work of Christ in our life. In the New Testament, there are a number of places we could go and literally find lists that would help us regarding the way that we think. And today we're going to look at some of that that, that uh, the Spirit has for us through the, through the pen of Paul. It tells us what, literally what we ought to think on. And uh, I'm glad that they're there because I'm just that practical in my spiritual life. You don't really need to overemphasize it. It's just that um, if God says it, I want to believe it. I want to understand it. But I want to, I want to make application to my life. Does that, is that what you want? You want to see that in the Word of God? and You want to do that and experience the goodness of that? So that's what we're talking about. So in this, uh, this is really part two. We began chapter six in our last lesson. This will be part two, and there'll be a three and a four. I'll be back next Sunday, and I don't know when I'll be back after that, but we'll just continue on. But here we're talking about the transforming grace of God, and particularly the power of the gospel. We met last on April the 17th, and we started looking at the resources that the Lord had provided to us in His Word as we deal with this issue of the continual killing of sin or the mortification of sin in our life. We talked about experiencing His overcoming power. And we saw two things, uh, if you'll recall. I wouldn't expect you to recall, but I'll give you a couple of things here. We noted that the Lord has called every born-again person out of the world. We think about sometimes what He's called us to, but we went back with some effort and looked at the fact that God has called us out of something. He's required in His Word, now that we have His power to do it, He requires us to put off the world. Remember that? We talked about that and we looked at that. And then secondly, we explored the fact that we're strangers and sojourners, as it says here. You'll see that word pilgrims, and it's just talking about having the right attitude about our relationship to our life and service here as long as we're alive on this earth, that this is not our home. And we looked at a number of scriptures that reminded us of that. And even today, as we enter into the third chapter of Colossians here, Paul will remind us once again. So that's important. It's important to keep a right perspective about where our citizenship is. Because if we don't, we begin to start having all these crazy expectations out of the world and out of the world system and so forth. And that's just not how we think. You know, we're here for a time. And what happens to us is at the hand of our sovereign God. And we subject ourselves to Him. And we live for Him. And we don't live according to the dictates of this world. We spent a good amount of time on that. So we concluded our study by examining ourselves, not so much as Paul says to see if we were in the faith. We talked about that, but we talked about examining ourselves to see whether or not we were actually expecting the return of the Lord Jesus. And I listed a number of scriptures for you from the New Testament that talks about that we're to look toward His coming, literally uh, from Thessalonians, that we are to comfort one another with those words, the words of Christ returning for us should be a comfort to us. And I dare say that in my young Christian life, yes, my Christian life, when I thought about the return of Christ, I always thought about imminent judgment, not focusing on the fact that, wait a minute, He's already paid 
your sin debt. And that's just kind of the background that I came from. And we are to understand what God has accomplished for us through Christ. He's our mediator. He's our intercessor. He's paid our sin debt. God the Father has been satisfied. And we're to always live and function in the light of that great truth. That changes everything, as we say. It changes everything. So I made reference then to Colossians 3 as a specific provision from the Lord's Word which serves to encourage and to equip us as Christians because we have this continual battle with the flesh and the things that the world throws against us. So we'll begin looking at what the Holy Spirit has to say through Paul. And I guess this morning we'll just look at the first four verses. We won't get much further than that. And uh, I'll say again, my, I don't know what you've been accustomed to with Joel, but I'll get started up here sometimes, and I never see a hand. I rarely get a question, but, so don't feel like you're interrupting me. If you need to <laughs> say something or if you want to ask a question, raise your hand, and John will answer it for you back there. Okay, I'll call on John. But we'll get it, we'll get it done, so I didn't want to discourage you in that light. So we're going to look at Colossians, but first let's, let's take a moment to, since we're kind of jumping over to Colossians, uh, take a moment to look at Colossians as a whole just to kind of get a picture, uh, maybe a little better picture about what Paul was talking about and what he's done through this letter with the Colossians uh, so far. Uh, not a whole lot. You could probably go to a good study Bible and get this information. We know that Paul wrote this around 61 A.D. And we know that Colossians was, of course, a Roman city. He was there in uh, Phrygia and Asia Minor. Um, a place where a lot of people came through uh, until they kind of redirected the road there. You had to go through Colossae. Uh, so there's people from all over there. And of course, anytime you got people from all over, you got all kinds of attitudes and all kinds of religions and things of that nature. So that's what's going on, and that's what Paul's addressing. Had a lot of, it was primarily um, a Gentile area which, you know, you have all these mystic religions and so forth and just paganism. But there was a large Jewish population there too. So Paul's got all kinds of issues. He's got legalists, you know. He's got people who got a little bit of the word here and they haven't made the break, you know, because of what Christ has done away from the law and so on and so forth and the ritual of the law. He's dealing with that from the Jewish perspective. And then he's dealing with all these other influences that come in. And you want to say, what a mess. You know, he had the same thing in Corinth. Uh, because as the world began moving around, thanks to the Romans and their ability to build roads, you know, we started seeing this kind of thing. People coming all over and bringing that information. Uh, the way they had been living, they bring it with them. He saw you know, this influence of Gnosticism, and you hear that from time to time. It was widespread there. You know, that's where they think that anything uh, in the physical is, is bad. It's only the spiritual that's good or only God that's good. And if the two didn't have anything to do with one another, you know, out of that comes what? Antinomianism, you know, where you think you can, just because you've been born again or you say you have, that you can live any way you want because the spirit and the flesh don't have anything to do with one another. That is not biblical. Okay, that's not what it says. But people believe that and you can see the draw, can't you? You can see why people would want to believe that. Wow, I can have heaven. I can have all of these things and still do my own thing. No, not so. But that was there as an influence. So he had to deal with that. There are all kinds of offshoots from that particular brand of thinking that caused problems in their society. Uh, false teachers had arisen. And Paul himself, he'd never been to Colossae. He'd never been there. Never went there as far as we know. But an old boy named Epaphras had gone over to Ephesus, about 100 miles away, and apparently he had, had been saved under the preaching of Paul, because Paul was certainly there at Ephesus. And he goes back and most likely started the church there. And that's exactly what Paul was trying to accomplish. It's the exact same thing that we try to accomplish nowadays, is it not? And that's what happened there. So he goes back and he's there in the church at Colossae. Without a doubt, Paul is writing from a Roman prison. And I always like to mention that, you know, when we talk about the prison epistles because 
uh, I think it throws a whole different light on what's going on as Paul is there. Now we know, you know, that he wasn't always like thrown down in a hole and standing in mud up to his waist as most of the dungeons were. He wasn't always like that. You know, we know that he had some liberty at times when he was in prison, though he was chained to a guard. Uh, he, he could have visitors and so forth, but yet his personal freedoms were restricted. And yet he never loses his love and his desire to minister to the churches and to write. And obviously it was the work of God's Spirit because we have it today. We can go and read these wonderful, wonderful principles from God's Word. But to know that he's there writing and pouring out his heart over the needs of these churches and the things that are most important to him. I mean, can you imagine? He can't flip out the laptop and go through it, you know, and, and then change things. No, he's, he's got to get it right, you know, and then get it out and find a, somebody to deliver it, which, of course, probably in this case it was Epaphras. He takes it. And he wanted the letter read there at Colossae, and he also wanted the letter read at Laodicea. A lot of work, a lot to be done just to get the Word of God out. And that's because of his great love for the churches. So he tells us a number of things as he begins uh, Colossians. Uh, I mentioned, so I wanted to mention just a couple coming up to the third chapter. Because in the 15th verse of chapter 1, he says, talking about Christ, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. This is the Christ that we're talking about. This is the Christ that we're talking about who has our best interest at hand here. He's the one that we go to as believers this is His position. This is what He has accomplished for us. How do we ever lose sight of that? And uh, that's what He's done. We're going to look at who He is and find out about how much of our confidence is rooted and sunk down into the person, the, the finished work of Christ. Then I mark chapter or verse 6 of chapter 2 as we move up to chapter 3. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And that's what we're talking about. We know about the impact of sin. We know about how deceitful it can be. We know that the wages of sin is death and everything in between. And now we're looking at the fact that we are to walk in Him. And he says, continuing in verse 7, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding with thanksgiving. And there that word thanksgiving pops up again, and I know we've mentioned in here at least once, about how thanksgiving is most definitely a characteristic of a believer. Believers are thankful. They're thankful for what God has done, for the Word of God, for the fellowship of the church, for the opportunity for service to Christ. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, In Him we also... Uh, or in Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's where we've been going. We've been looking at a number of verses as we've looked at this mortification of sin that remind us about what's been accomplished for us in Christ and we are to identify it. You'll hear me say this over and over again. Call it what it is. Call it what it is. Don't rationalize sin. Don't deal with it loosely. Don't, don't deal with it in a flippant kind of way. We do that because we are constantly aware of the danger of it. Regardless of how small it is, we learn to deal with it. And then we learn later over in verse 14 that He has taken that and all that the law requires and He has, as He says, nailed it to the cross. Hallelujah. The price has been paid. It's been nailed to the cross. Our sins, if you will, have been nailed to the cross. Here the context is that the requirements of the law are nailed to the cross. Christ has satisfied that, remember? He didn't come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it. That's what He did. He is our sufficient sacrifice. And that's what's happened. So that takes us up to the third chapter. If we were looking particularly in the book, in Hedges' book about license to kill, he would call this particular portion in the book the transforming power of union with Christ. 
That's how he titles it. The transforming power of union with Christ. And in my preparations, and of course I use by and large, or mostly I use MacArthur commentary, he titles this section, uh, the first four chapters of uh, chapter 3 in Colossians, he titles it Living the Risen Life, which is exactly what we're talking about here. How do we live the risen life? Well, look at the first verse of chapter 3. The first verse in chapter 3. Where Paul says to the church, he says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And he tells us to go back and he says, If then. Now this, this doesn't convey any kind of skepticism. This doesn't convey any kind of doubt when he says, If then. It's more like so that. Okay? Or because of. And it speaks of the reality uh, your Bible probably says your translation's down there. If you look in your study Bible, it probably says that a better translation there is since. In other words, this is a done deal. Paul is talking to Christians, and you hope he's talking to Christians who know where they stand. There is no doubt here. If you've been raised with Christ, and what it actually means there, it mean, it, it's, re- it's a reference to a co-resurrection. And that's important. I like that terminology because that's the way we should vision this. A co-resurrection. We're familiar with verses that talk about the risen Christ. If He's risen, we'll be risen with Him. And in this sense, we are raised with Him. If we've died to sin, if we've died to ourselves, we're identified with Him through His death. And we'll see that time and time again. That seems to reoccur as we go through this. But it also indicates that it is a fact, that it is a done deal, this co-resurrection. So understanding where we stand in Christ is very important, is it not? I mean, the world can throw some nasty things at you, can it not? All kinds of difficulties can come upon us. And we begin to kind of go introspective on the difficulties that we're having, whether they're financial, they're relational, they deal with our jobs, uh, families, whatever, uh, physical things, you know, that occur in our life. That's just life. But remembering Christ, remembering what He's done for us, remembering that our state is that we have been raised with Him. And God sees it as a done deal. It can't be changed. That is our status. That's where we are. And the world would blind us. It would have us believe something else. It would have us to believe that we're at the mercy of the world and what the world throws at us. That couldn't be further from the truth. So we want to we focus on that. Well, he tells us that we are to seek this. If you then be raised with Christ, seek. And if you stop and look at that closely, he's talking about a continual action. This doesn't stop. It's not a one-time thing. Oh yeah, I've sought God in my life. I've responded to Him. I have come forward. I'm, I've been baptized. I'm, uh, I'm born again. Well, great. But the seeking doesn't stop. All of that that I just said is absolutely necessary. But understand what He's saying is keep on seeking God. Are, are you ever going to get everything from God in this life? Are you ever going to understand Him fully? No, you're not. And each and every time, and it's usually through difficulties, through trials, that He moves us closer to Him, and you have that blessed opportunity, that privilege to look back and see where He's brought you from. Do you not agree that that has been the greatest amount of spiritual growth and blessing in your life? It always happens that way. Always. Mostly. Mostly it happens that way. We're to seek and we're to keep on seeking. And I can tell you this based on the authority of God's Word. And you run into somebody who's not seeking. They claim an experience in Christ, but they don't seek Him. He's not their life. He's obviously not their Lord, to be specific. They are not seeking Him. they got reason to question whether they belong to Him or not. In fact, back, what was it, verse uh, in chapter 1, verse 23... Paul says, uh, he's talking about uh, the body and the flesh and and being uh, holy and blameless. And in verse 23, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith. 
grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. This principle remains. We know it as perseverance. But we are to continually seek Him because He's our life. You know, Paul says he, he's, he's everything. To, to live is Christ. To die is gain. He's the only thing that I preach. I don't preach anything else, he says, except Christ and Him crucified. So Christ is our focus. He's our portion. 1 John 2.19 reflects on this issue about seeking and not seeking. There John says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. You're familiar with this verse? He says, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And John deals with this. Who's a Christian? Who's not a Christian? Who can say that, they've, that they are indeed followers of Christ? You might say, well, what is the telltale sign? Well, we know from a spiritual perspective that it's possessing the Holy Spirit of God. Because the same Paul tells us through the Spirit that you know, if you have not the Spirit of God, then you're none of His. That is, that you do not belong to Him. And from the outside looking in, John is saying, and you find someone who's not focused upon Him, who's not seeking Him, who's not staying on the path, who's, whose life is not about the person of Christ. I'm not talking about church in particular. I'm not talking, certainly not talking about religion in particular. I'm talking about the person of Christ. That's no longer their focus. And we might want to help them reanalyze you know, examine themselves as we've already seen. And he tells us that this happens purposefully. Did you catch that in the verse? Why does it happen? He says that they might be made manifest. We're going to chase this just for a minute here. This is important. When you see that happening, it is the manner in which people's intent is manifested. Do you follow that? We have obligations, do we not, as believers in the body of Christ to care. Paul says to consider the things of another more important than your own things. The admonitions about going to someone who's in sin and so forth. Ye who are spiritual. We do that because it's a command. We do that because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We receive that perhaps, from someone else because we believe in that principle. We believe that it's there for our good. You know, when Jonathan comes up to me and says, hey, Mike, let me, let me talk to you just for a minute. Uh, what are you doing? You know, or whatever. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. We're to focus, we're to seek Him. The ultimate test of true Christianity is endurance is this perseverance. Christ allows the influence of false teachers to purge the church. Because as He says in 1 John here, they are made manifest. They will reveal themselves. We say their true colors will be known. Then He talks about, when He continues this about seeking, He says that you're to seek those things which are above. Okay, And when He's doing that, He's literally talking about heaven. We seek the things which are above, to be heavenly minded. And I'm sure you've heard the, the, the phrase before, you know, that some are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. We don't want to be like that. But we do want to focus upon what God has accomplished for us, as we said when we first began. And he talks about where Christ is. This whole emphasis here in this phrase deals with the person of Christ. In other words, it focuses us, focuses us not on the place, once again, but on the person. Again, as we say, this is wholly relational. It's about us and our relationship to Christ. And in this particular part of the verse, Christ is the focus. Not the place, but Christ it's got to be heaven wherever He is, right? <laughs> and that's what it's focusing on. The things which are above, where Christ is. Again, we can reflect on Philippians 3.10. I think we did it last lesson as well, where Paul talks about the desire just simply to know Him, he says. My desire 
is to know Christ. He mentions the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering. And when we first introduced that verse into our study, we talked about this relational aspect. Paul goes back and builds upon that again here. It's where Christ is. It's being with Him. Do you remember from John 14, chapter John, yes, that He goes to prepare a place for us? Do you remember why He's doing that? He tells us plainly. Why is Christ going to prepare a place for us? You remember the verse? That where I am, he says, there you may be also. Being with him. Being in constant, eternal, blissful fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's radical, isn't it? It is. And that's what we believe. We reflect upon his love, upon his grace, upon his compassion, upon his abiding presence upon His Word. We recall that He is the living Word of God, the Word made flesh. And we can enjoy His presence through the Spirit and through the Word of God and grow and be filled with everything that we need for the day. That's what we can have. To say nothing of our future. This changes everything. This is an orientational change in the way that we think simply because we're focusing upon heaven. We're focusing upon the person of Christ and what He has done for us. Does this not take effort in our life? I mean, we've all got busy lives. I can stand up here and look at y'all and say, y'all been run through the ringer this week. We've got busy lives, right? We've got things that we have to do and attend to. We've got things that draw on our emotional strength, trying to be so many things, trying to be mama, daddy, you know, husband, uh, father, all these different things to say nothing of your professional life and the other responsibilities that you have in your life there at work and at church and so many things. We can crumble under the pressure. We can try to think that we have to make sense out of everything, that we have to organize everything, or we can trust God and be faithful. And it'll be ama- you'll be amazed at what He will do and what He will bring to pass in your life. Let me read from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the writer of Hebrews is doing exactly, to a greater degree, what Paul is trying to say here. Refocusing people upon what has been accomplished for them. And if you were to go through and look at a list as I did, at the number of times that it talks about the position of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what He's doing for us right now, where He's positioned, it talks about Him sitting at the right hand of God. It talks about Him being seated at the right hand of the power of God. From Acts, it talks about Him being exalted to the right hand of God. Again, in Acts chapter 5, the one whom God has exalted to His right hand. And of course, we're reading again, standing at the right hand of God is what Stephen said right before he took his last breath. That's where he saw Christ at the right hand of God in His rightful place standing to receive Him. And He's there in that same position for you and I. He's right there. He who is at the right hand of God intercedes for us, Paul tells us in Romans 8. And in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about Him being raised and seated, Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, right where Paul tells us in Colossians that we are to focus. Focusing on heaven and on the uh, person of Christ. Again, from Hebrews chapter 2, it talks about that He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, who has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. And then lastly, from 1 Peter 3.22, It speaks of Him who is just simply at the right hand of God. Christ has not left us. No. He went back. He left us the Holy Spirit. He said, it's good that I go. Recall, it's good that I go. If I don't go, the Helper won't come. He'll not only be with you. He's not only that paraclete, as it says, alongside you. He's literally within you. 
And when He's in us, now we can have the mind of Christ. We can be changed through the Word and through the Holy Spirit. We don't have an excuse. This is what has been accomplished for us to give us the great power and surge that we need in this life. So why is all this important? Why is it important that we keep uh, in mind where He is, what He's done, and how available He is to us? Well, Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Listen, since He always lives to make intercession for them. That's pretty plain. That's why He's there. He's there to make intercession. We need an intercessor, do we not? No man comes to the Father but by Him. Yes, we came to the Father for salvation through Christ, did we not? And He remains our mediator because He's paid our sin debt. What else do we know? Well, quite simply, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. That is, the man, Christ Jesus. We know and believe that He's the only one. And to chase anything else, even if we're doing it subconsciously, <coughs> excuse me, is faulty. It will not supply. It will not meet a need. I don't care how religious it is. Legalism was the ticket from the Jews in Paul's day. Legalism never gave anybody strength over anything. All the law does is bring us to the knowledge of sin. We need grace. We need empowerment through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God. And that's exactly what we get from our great intercessor. For every situation in life, everything that comes against us. I'm just as human as the next man. I've experienced things in my work life last week that are burdensome, that, that cause me concern. And I have to ask myself, Lord, am I, am I making too much out of this? Am I dwelling on this too much? And if so, why? Is it for pur- uh, purposeful, selfish reasons? Does it have anything to do with what you're doing in my life? We need to ask ourselves that question and examine things that come into our life, situations, difficulties, conflicts, examine them through the Word of God and let that Word and the Spirit of God bring to bear on our life God's truth. That changes, changes everything. Well, He moves us from there. He moves us from um, talking about the transforming power of union with Christ to a phrase that I love, he calls it next, he calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. Now, you know, we talked about Christian affections and so forth. And we go back and we talked a little bit about Jonathan Edwards and his book so many, many years ago. But the first part of this title is important because it talks about the expulsive power. The expulsive power, that is that which takes something out. It's, it's been expulsed, okay? It's taken out. The expulsive power of a new affection. So when what we set our mind upon, as the Bible tells us to do, when that begins to change and we begin to embrace that, there's no room for worldliness. There's no room for the other things that want to dominate our life. This new affection, as he says, has an expulsive effect, Right? Something has to come out. This is a problem from both ends. So many times people come to Christ and they're so focused upon putting off, as Paul says, and getting things out of their life that they don't do the positive. They don't embrace fully the new life. And then you got people who from the other end, they're just so excited about new life in Christ, they want to embrace that. They want a whole list of what God has done for them and what He's going to do. And yet, they may have some things they still need to deal with that need to be taken out of their life, identified and dealt with. So it's a concern from both ends. But this new affection does have a replacing effect in our life. Well, that takes us to verse 2. He says to set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Again, Paul has moved into a very practical level of teaching here. 
Quite simply, set your mind, change your mind. Put it on things above, not on things of the earth. Do you ever have a little talk with yourself following perhaps a, a difficult time and you just say, wait a minute, let me back off here. I'm too wrapped up in this, okay? I'm, I'm beginning to act and think worldly. My responses then are on the verge of not being biblical. They're going to be worldly if I don't get my mind set, if I don't get straight here. This is what helps us do that. See, that is an expulsive effect in our life. That's what we want to see. Set your mind, he says, and it literally means to think. Think this way. And it's talking about having a different disposition. Our inner disposition has become different. Aren't we supposed to be different? Does it not say, aren't we supposed to be a a peculiar people, as it were? Are not people supposed to take note of the fact that we've been with Christ, that we claim His name, that we, we do react and respond differently? We don't succumb to the things of the world because we don't live on that plane. We're not looking at that. We, we still remember, as it said up front, we're passing through. We have a new life in Christ. We have a Savior who continues to mediate for us. He's there for us. He will never, ever leave us, it says. This is what we have in Christ. And we're to set our minds on that. We're to think of that. We're to be absorbed with that. And he tells us on what to think. Now before, remember, when he talked about setting your mind differently, the focus there was specifically on the person of Christ. Heaven and then the person of Christ. Now he's going to talk about exactly what you think about. Set your mind on things above. Again, on heaven, being heavenly minded. Now Paul tells us in Philippians 4, chapter 8, I don't know why, maybe he did tell the church at Colossae at some point, but we have it recorded what he said along these lines to the church at Philippi in chapter 4, verse 8, because he says this, this is what you think on. You mean we actually have a list in the Bible? Yeah, put it on the refrigerator, okay? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, and then he adds, if it is virtuous or praiseworthy that we are to meditate on these things. Oh, really? We actually have a list? Yeah. And it's an all-encompassing list. He talks about that which is true. You can read these words in Psalm 119, verse 116. You can also read them in John 17, 17. For there it says, your word is truth. Now, if you don't believe that, you got a problem. Okay? Jesus did a little witnessing when he was before Pilate. Okay? And he talked about truth. You remember Pilate's response? He gave the, the typical worldly response as Jesus talked to him about truth. You recall what he said? What is truth? Yeah. What is truth? Is that not sad? Is that not a... Sad commentary. I imagine Pilate was pretty perplexed about what was true and what wasn't. But that's the attitude of the world. And you and I live in a day when they would look at Christian community and say, look, you do not have all the answers. You do not. Now, the wagon wheel approach is better. It's like, you know, you're in the center and all these spokes are going out. To, you know, and the people are on the outside trying to find God and they all come different ways and all that. That's not what we preach as Christians. We preach there's one mediator. There's one way. God's done one thing for sinful mankind. That's the essence of our truth. The person of Christ. He is truth. That's what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Be truthful. And what is, what is this nobility? Just anything that's worthy of respect, it throws... Two things in opposition, that which is sacred versus that which is profane. We're to stay away from that because that in and of itself is worldly and not noble. We want to stay away from that. True, noble, and what is this just? That which is right, he says, or that which is just appropriate for holy living. If our words, if our actions, if our neglects, do not move us forward in our progressive 
sanctification, then they're to be disallowed. And this is how we separate ourselves from the Word. He talks about that which is pure. And here he's talking about that which is morally pure. Morally pure, clean, undefiled. And, and what a chore in this day and life. If you've got any kind of media going on in your house, this is a constant, constant effort because it's found its way into our living rooms through mass media. That which is lovely, pleasing or amiable. It's okay. We, we appreciate lovely things, don't we? Spending time there. I have the most wonderful granddaughter, okay? It's amazing. I can't believe I'm that old. But, you know, she's just, she's just wonderful. Uh, and watching her grow and being able to talk to her and go in, an example for her and to see the slightest response, you know, or the slightest bit of interest in what I'm saying to her, you know, reminds me of my responsibility, even as a grandfather, but things that are lovely, things that are pleasing. And those things, he says, which are of good report, or those things which are highly regarded or thought well of. These are the things that we spend our time thinking about because if we spend our time thinking about them, they result in actions. And that gets us into another whole other area of God's Word. As we've said, it's not enough to know. We have to do, right? We have to do. Be doers of the Word, it says. Not just hearers only. And he concludes by saying if it's virtuous or praiseworthy, that that's what we are to meditate on. That's what we are to set our minds on. This leads to a fulfilled life. And if you don't have the mind of Christ, then you're ill-equipped. You're unequipped. You're not ill-equipped, Mike. You're unequipped. If you don't have the mind of Christ, how do we get that mind of Christ he tells us that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. There's all kinds of ways to do that. You're here. You're in fellowship. You're under the sound of the Word of God, not just in, in Bible study, adult Bible study or Sunday school, uh, not just in church here, but in other ways, in community groups, in prayer groups, uh, things outside of the church that are appropriate. You're there filling your mind. And your mind is changing because it's being transformed. It's being renewed. This process can only happen in the life of a believer. And if you're here this morning and you do not possess the Spirit of God within you through the new birth, the Bible says that this is really foolishness to you. That's the testimony of God's Word. You may be hearing this outside of of Christ, and it may be a draw to you this morning, and that's good. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But it cannot be applied in your life until you are a possessor of the Spirit of God. It cannot. And I would draw you to Him this morning with that truth, or He would draw you with that truth. This is the work of the Holy Spirit and very much a part of our sanctification. Well, verse 3 says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I like thinking about the fact, the fact, when I, as I often do sometimes, with no intent of my own, I begin thinking back on my life before Christ. I begin thinking about that. And then I, I mix in the struggles that I had in my new life in Christ. I don't like thinking about those either. And were it not for the fact that I know that what Christ started in me that day, right before my 14th birthday, has not ceased. It has continued. And He has done exactly what we've been talking about here in my life. And I know in your life, if you're a believer, He has brought you forward. He is moving you forward. You have not left Him. Your failures have not thrown you back into the world. They haven't done that. And the Word of God says, as we looked at up front here, it doesn't work that way for the true believer. That's what He's done in our life. And He's continuing that sanctifying process in our life. Why? Because He says that you died. 
our faith in Christ and what He did for us made us a part of His death, if you will. We died. We died with Him. We're buried with Him in baptism. You know, that, that uh, example that we have. Raised to walk in the newness of life. We were there with Him. He did that for us. I remember years ago when I was uh, at my former church when I was uh, <clears throat> preaching one night at our church and uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful man there, Dr. Walton McMillan. And I may have mentioned Dr. <coughs> Mack before, but he's passed on now. But, you know, he, he was a Greek reader. He preached from a little red Greek New Testament. He actually translated from the Greek as he preached. And uh, he knew the Word of God. He understood expository preaching. I, my, my only regret is I got to know Dr. Mack later in life. Uh, and he was starting to kind of wind down. But I shared one night and I remember talking about Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. And I had made a couple of statements. I said something about, of course, He paid our sin debt. You know, Christ died, paid our sin debt. Uh, you know, he died in my place. You know, you hear that. Christ died on the cross in my place. And you can make some interesting observations. Yes, he did. He paid our sin debt. And then I made the observation that he, he, he fulfilled his place on the cross as well. That he died there. In other words, nobody could have done what he did on the cross except Christ. And we understand that and believe that, of course. You know, he took his place on the cross and he died in our place. Both of those are true, and I remember after uh, the uh, the message and so forth, I was talking to Dr. Mack, and he walked up to me and he shook my hand and he said, "Keep going, you'll get it." <laughs> and I thought, "What?" And I went back to him and said, what are, you, "What are you talking about?" You know, and he was so wrapped up in what Christ had done for us. Thank God, and we understand that, that he wasn't even comfortable with any mention about Christ taking his place on the cross. Christ said to this end, you know, was I born? Okay, He came to pay our sin debt. He went to the cross. You read in Luke 9, was it 53? It says that He set His sight, He set His mind on going toward the cross. That's what He was here for. That's what He was to do. A ransom for many, you know. I just remembered that, but both are true. <laughs> you died, and we died with Christ there as He died. And your life is hidden. Listen, it's hidden with Christ in God. That's pretty secure, is it not? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. What else could you want? That's what He has accomplished for us. So don't let the things of the world drag you back as we read. Don't don't get wrapped up in the sinful allurements of the world. Don't do that. We don't have to do that. We now have strength to live above and beyond that. The wages of sin is still death. And we know and have the assurance that Christ, for the believer, has paid that. He satisfied that on our behalf. And He says that we are hidden with Christ in God. We have this fellowship. We have it with God the Father and with God the Son. That's what he tells us in 1 John 1.3. We have that fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And I like it what John says in the Gospel because he's talking about you know his sheep, hear his voice, they respond to him, they don't know another. And in those same passages there, he says that no one can snatch us out of his hand, John 10.28 and 29. No one can snatch us out of the hand of God. I love that. Because sometimes it seems like perhaps we're kind of teetering, doesn't it? <laughs> we're kind of kind of on the brink. But no, not from God's perspective. Paul talks about our relationship to Christ and he uses really an unusual word. He talks about crucifixion. There are four times that Paul uses the word crucifixion when he's not talking about the crucifixion of Christ. He's talking about like in Galatians 2.20 where he says, I am crucified with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. And that's what we're looking at here. He has died with Christ. And then in Romans 6.6, he talks about his old man, the old life being crucified. He uses that same 
word, again, a word which in Paul's day conjured up a whole different thing than we think of when we hear the word crucified. Can you get a hold of that just for a minute? Can you kind of step back maybe historically, culturally to first century and people being hung on a cross and as it says from time to time, the streets being lined with their bodies, a horrific, horrible, agonizing death done very, very publicly. Excruciating is the word that we get from that. Paul says, I've taken that and I've applied it to the old man. I've got a new affection. I've put off something. I've made a hole in my life and I'm filling it with the Word of God, the person of Jesus Christ. Or God has made that hole. What else does he say? Galatians 6.14 But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We've talked about coming out of the world. And he tells the church at Galatia, you got to do that. you got to see a clear difference between what Christ calls us to and what the world would have us be involved in. And then lastly, and we're done, when Christ, who is our life, appears, He says, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Verse 4 there. <coughs> I won't, and I'm not prepared to go really deep in this because we've really already talked about this to some extent. Just looking for Him... We spent some time, as I said, looking at Scriptures last time we met, back in April, talking about are we really looking for Jesus? And I think we ended, there were a number of them, and we ended with Revelation 22.20, where John says, look, in spite of all the, in light of all that I've just gone through here in the Revelation, he says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come. And we'll end today just by asking the question, is that where you are this morning? Is your spiritual life so in line this morning with the things of God that you can say, come Lord Jesus? Or do you have some things that you need to get straight, that you need to make a new and fresh commitment to, confession, repentance even, over the way that we view our risen Savior and His command over our life. Paul gives us some specific things to look for and some specific things to do.